This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are all doing well or having a great week leading up to the holiday or during the holiday, depending on which you celebrate. But we are in the final stretch of 2022, and this is actually the last episode that I'll be posting until the new year. So this is the last story you'll be hearing from me in 2022. And I have to say, it's a particularly interesting story from history that we're going to share today, one that I stumbled across and I felt like I struck gold because it was that interesting. Just the first few sentences of this article I found, I was like, I have to cover this story. So I did some digging. I've been actually reading all day long about this story, this crime that unfolded in New York City right where I'm sitting right now, in the 60s. It was a crime that rocked the city, that honestly astounded the entire world. And I'm thrilled to share it with you guys today. But before I get into that, I do just want to, you know, a couple of little personal updates, I guess. So this is the week before Christmas. It's very odd that Christmas is on a weekend this year. So I feel like it's been hard for people to commit to being truly offline or, you know, taking off from work because it's on a weekend. It's like, oh, well, I guess I can work my usual Monday to Friday and, you know, get my hours in. And it doesn't really feel like it's a holiday. Like it doesn't really feel like we have time off, but I am committed, personally committed to working this week up until Wednesday. Then when this episode drops on Thursday, I want to go, I'm done for the week. I'm done for the year, but we'll see because... Of course, the content never ends and I always have things that I want to share and work on. So we'll see what I can muster. But I'm very excited to just have some chill time at home with my family, take some time off from creating and come back in 2023 with fresh ideas and hopefully I won't be as tired. I'm also considering doing dry January, which I'm actually like really, really leaning towards doing because I think that my poor liver and my sleep, like I need a break. We need a break. We need to (laughs) cleanse and not consume nearly as many dirty martinis in 2023 because I got to say, it affects you, you know. I mean, no wonder binge drinking affects you, but 
I think in New York, there's always this spirit of, you know, it's cold outside. There's really nothing to do except for gather in a bar and drink till the cows come home. So I'm going to try to find some other things that I can do with my time in January, aside from going to bars and attempt dry January. So yeah, that's the plan. If you too are considering dry January, send me a message. We can hold each other accountable. (laughs) Because I will say the only thing that's really hard about dry January or just like not drinking in general is going on dates and being completely sober on a date. Like I've done sober dates before, but it's definitely a popular activity when you're proposing like, oh, let's go on a date. Let's do this. It's usually like, okay, let's go get drinks. Like getting drinks is a natural first date, I feel like for many of us. So that is where it will get tricky. So we'll see. Maybe I'll make a rule where it's like I'm doing dry January except for if I go on a date. But TBD. We'll see what ends up actually happening, what I end up actually accomplishing. But I think it'd be so good for just my body and mind to not drink in the month of January. So we'll see. But that being said, it's after Christmas, after New Year's, like New Year's, I'm planning on definitely drinking, cheersing, doing all the stuff. We're doing a beer Olympics, like all sorts of plans in the mountains at our mountain house. So after that, maybe I will take the plunge. But we'll see. So with that, guys, those were uh, my few updates I have before we go into the holidays. But of course, follow me on my other channels on YouTube, on Instagram to see what I'm up to during the holidays, during our little hiatus from the podcast. And of course, my other podcast, Match Made, we're updating that one one last time this week as well and coming back after the new year. So yeah, resting my vocal cords. That is uh, on the agenda. But today is a different story because I'm about to launch into a tale that you simply will not believe. So we're going back in time to 1964 here in New York City. It was the night of October 29th, so Halloween weekend. It was spooky in the city, spooky vibes all around, just two days after actually my birthday, but many, many years before I was born, of course. Two sharply dressed men crept onto the grounds of New York City's American Museum of Natural History. While one other man, so a third man, the designated getaway driver, slowly drove around in a white Cadillac around the museum's block of Manhattan. The men, dressed in velour jackets, were athletic and stylish and stealthy. This was not their first rodeo. They had pulled plenty of other similar schemes back in Florida, where they were from. After scaling a fence to the museum's courtyard, the two Florida natives scrambled up a fire escape to secure a rope to a pillar just above the fourth floor windows of the J.P. Morgan Hall of Gems and Minerals. 125 feet up off the ground, clinging to the rope, one of them would swing to the open window and use his feet to lower the sash. The large windows in this room had actually been left open two inches every single night. Like they'd been open for the sake of better ventilation in the room, which massive security risk, but apparently they didn't seem to care. One of the men said he almost fell over after he startled a bunch of pigeons that burst into flight on his way in the window. But after scaling the building and jumping through like acrobats, they were inside. With 25-foot ceilings and a metal gate locking it off from the rest of the museum, the gem and minerals room was isolated. And despite housing millions of dollars worth of precious gems, priceless gems even, this exhibit actually wasn't that popular in the museum. It was just down the hall from the Ice Age Mammals exhibit, which honestly 
honestly slaps. I've actually been to this museum many times. It's really interesting if you are into history like myself, but it's a huge museum. There's so many different exhibits and the J.P. Morgan Hall of Gems and Minerals just wasn't that popular at the time. It was actually said that the museum restrooms received more traffic than the gem hall. The museum didn't really publicize the fact that the glass cases in this hall contained some of the most valuable jewels known to man. The massive dinosaur bones on display just towered over these tiny little stones housed in this mysterious room that not many people went to or knew existed. So while most tourists didn't have interest in the gems, a couple of thieves from Florida were entranced by them. Alan Dale Kuhn, and Jack Roland Murphy, two sharply dressed men, scaled the building that night. They jumped inside through these slightly ajar windows, used a glass cutter and duct tape to breach three display cases, and then they used a squeegee to gather 24 gems. This was after their initial attempt of actually trying to smash the cases with rubber mallets. This failed and it actually was very loud, so they were worried they were going to get caught by the security guards. So they used glass cutters to cut a circle in the glass, which I'm sure if you've seen any sort of crime movie, true or fictional, you've probably seen. That's how a lot of people will get in glass doors or glass windows. They'll, you know, cut a hole and then get through that way. And then they covered the hole with duct tape to prevent shattering and muffled the sound and then they just like punched it in and got their hand inside of the display case. And their haul included the Milky Blue Star of India gem, which is the world's biggest sapphire. And I looked up a photo of it and it has this like star-like shape in its center. It's so beautiful. And it weighed 563.35 carats. So it was about the size of a golf ball. Like this huge sapphire, priceless sapphire was one of the things that they stole. And then they also snagged the orchid red DeLong star ruby, which was 100.32 carats. And it was considered the world's most perfect ruby. They also took this purplish blue midnight star gem, which was the largest black sapphire at 116 carats. So those were three of the 24 gems that they stashed and took from the museum. And they noted that for them, it was nothing. Like they said, quote, for us, it wasn't anything. We just swung in there and took the stuff. And the one thief that was quoted as saying this, this was actually Murphy. He went by his code name, Murph the Surf. And it was because, I mean, I believe, and I've read in every publication that's documented this, that it was because he was an avid surfer back in Florida. So around midnight, after gathering up roughly two dozen jewels, prize emeralds, diamonds, aquamarines, several diamond bracelets, brooches and rings, the two went back down out the window the way they came in and climbed down to the ground. Murph the Surf said that as he slipped through the small park around the museum, they both split up and he slipped around and went to this park. He saw a crowd of police officers and he froze. He was shaking in his boots. And then he quickly realized that this actually wasn't a response to the robbery. Like they thought they might have accidentally tripped up some sort of security or like um, those little like, you know, red, what are they called? Like LED lights that like if you step past it, like an alarm sounds or something, they thought they might have triggered something. But it turns out the police officers were actually just changing shifts from the local precinct for the night. Still, there he was carrying this bag of stolen gems. He had a coil of rope draped over his shoulder, draped over that sharp velour jacket. He was wearing a very fancy outfit and the two officers headed towards him. He quickly, upon seeing them coming towards him, he did look very suspicious. He began chatting with a man walking his dog. He said, good evening, officers. And they gave him a nod 
and just kept walking. And I'm not really sure what happened to the getaway driver. I believe that Kuhn, the other guy, so there's the two guys that went into the museum, the one getaway driver, so three guys total involved in the scheme. And I believe that Kuhn, the other thief, got in the car with Clark, who is the getaway driver. That was his name or his last name. We're going to go by last names for this story. It's just much easier. So I'm not really sure what happened to them. But Murph the Surf, who's actually such an interesting character as you see this story go on further and into the rest of his life, you'll notice that. He's definitely very bold, uh, not afraid of getting caught, probably didn't think he was going to get caught, was very narcissistic, I think, and hopped up on adrenaline. Instead of going back to the hotel where him and the two guys were staying and throwing these lavish parties and being loud and crazy in the days leading up to the heist, he went straight to a bar. He didn't go back to the hotel. He wasn't hiding. He was just carrying this sack of priceless gems and went to a bar in Midtown to watch a jazz band perform. Like he didn't seem to care about getting caught or didn't think he would. And like I said, he was probably also hopped up on adrenaline. He was excited. And he said, I figured if I wind up going to jail for this, I might as well party a little before. So maybe he did think he was going to get caught, but he didn't care. He's like, I'm going to go paint the town and party before something happens. So minutes after pulling off this heist, he was standing with the jewels and a cocktail at this bar listening to this guy play the trumpet. <laughs> so to give you guys a little context about these three guys, like who were they? So Kuhn was 26 years old, Murph the Surf was 27, and Clark was 29. They were risk takers. They liked living large. They were these three surfer boys, and they'd driven up from Miami several weeks earlier in a white Cadillac and had moved into a penthouse suite at the Cambridge House Hotel on West 86th Street. They threw these crazy parties. They paid for it all with stolen money. They stole from everyone and anyone. They'd stolen a lot in Florida, but then also in New York. They would steal from people and throw these huge parties. They would run up massive room service bills and tip the staff generously. Like The hotel staff was very aware of these three guys that were throwing parties. And the way that they met each other. So Kuhn and Clark had actually spent several years together in the Navy. And then Murph the Surf was a college dropout and a skilled surfer that they'd somehow met along the way. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Their stealing sprees in Miami began as a little game, a way for them to get a little rush of adrenaline and rebel. And they said it was never about the money. It was always about the thrill of the chase. So they were committing all these smaller robberies undetected around town for years. But it was hard to ignore the museum's glittering world-class jewel exhibit just a few blocks away from their hotel. So they were like planning this scheme. It was much larger than anything that they had ever done, but it was thrilling to them. They'd gone into the museum in broad daylight, blending into the crowds of tourists during the day to assess the possibility of stealing gems. And they even brought girls on dates to the museum, pretending to marvel at the exhibits, but truly they were mapping out the layout and hatching their plan. The guys were mesmerized by the stones in the J.P. Morgan Gem Hall, and it was named the J.P. Morgan Gem Hall because the collection had been donated by the wealthy banker J.P. Morgan in 1901. And J.P. Morgan had hired Tiffany's gemologist, George Frederick Coons, to put together the collection. It was the Blue Star of India that we talked about.
about and that had actually been mined in South Asia 300 years ago and it was the size of a golf ball as we said. The Eagle Diamond was discovered in 1876 by a farmer in Wisconsin. Socialite Edith Hagen DeLong, the daughter of a copper magnet, had given the museum a gorgeous red ruby unearthed in Burma in the early 1930s. So these gems had some deep, deep history, and they were worth so much money. So they had all mysteriously vanished in the middle of the night, and it was just shy of 10 a.m. So they did this around like midnight, right? Like it was in the middle of the night. And then it took until 10 a.m. the next day for anyone to notice that they had disappeared. So it was Friday, October 30th, 1964 at 10 a.m. when a museum guard named John Hoffman unlocked the gates to the gem hall at the American Museum of Natural History. And within minutes, he was on the phone with the NYPD, virtually incoherent, these articles are saying. Like he was flustered. He was freaking out. The gem hall had been robbed for the first time ever. This has never happened. And there were some reasons why this happened that we'll get into, which is just crazy that this was even allowed to happen. Detective McNally and his associates headed right over and they got there to discover that the Hall of Gems was a total mess. There were glass display cases shattered to smithereens, cabinets broken and their contents missing, and quickly reporters swarmed the building. James A. Oliver, the director of the American Museum of Natural History, so he was the head honcho, he was the guy in charge, he was actually having a tooth pulled when the heist was first discovered. So he was at the dentist and then received word of this whole thing that had gone down. But if we go just 45 minutes prior, so 45 minutes, we're rewinding 45 minutes before the guard went in and realized the disaster, two of the thieves were boarding a flight back to Miami. So they were boarding a flight at 9.15. Then 10 a.m. is when everyone receives word that the museum had been robbed. And James A. Oliver, getting his tooth pulled, finds out. But they were boarding this flight The gems packed into a lady's overnight bag that was actually being carried by this 19-year-old girl named Janet, who had no idea that the gems were stowed into her bag. So she was an accomplice without knowing. And she had actually met the guys in the city, fell in love with one of them, was like one of their girlfriends. And they quickly seduced her into being a part of the plan, but she had no idea. So she was hopping on this flight with these guys she had just met, not knowing she had precious cargo. That afternoon on a press conference, James Oliver, the museum director, fresh out of his teeth pulling, which I find that detail so interesting, confessed to the press that security at the museum was, quote, not good. Batteries in the display case burglar alarm had been dead for months. The tops of all of the 19 exterior windows were left open two inches overnight for ventilation, and none of them had burglar alarms. So they walked in to this room with like no security. There was nothing preventing them from stealing this stuff. They had no idea. Like they assumed that there would be all sorts of security methods. And they were surprised to see, well, it's our lucky day. Because of budget cuts, the museum's security staff was reduced of the eight guards on duty that night. So eight guards for the entire 18 building museum. That's just not enough. It was the responsibility of one older guard, he was an aging man, to every once in a while shine a flashlight into the Hall of Gems during his rounds. But that was it. That was the only thing that could have potentially saved the gems. Museum bookkeepers valued the stolen gems at $410,000, which today would be about $3 million. Though the larger gems stolen were truly priceless. They were that valuable. And to many people's surprise, none of the gems were insured. And I'm really actually confused about that. I was trying to read why, but I guess because they were priceless, many of them, like you can't really get insurance on them. 
the museum director had said. Detectives swarmed the scene and they attempted to dust the display cases and the windows for any sort of fingerprints, but they found nothing. A plainclothes police officer named James Walsh heard from someone who heard from someone who went to this epic party thrown by Kuhn, Clark, and Murphy at the hotel where they had their epic penthouse situation on West 86th Street. And it was known to be a short walk from the museum. So they were like, this might be something. There was this epic party. They weren't exactly being tight-lipped about it either. Like there were murmurs that they had committed some sort of robbery at the party. So this guy, this officer, James Walsh, who had heard this tip says, I think I got something for you. There are three guys upstairs at this place spending money like wild. You'd think they were making it with a machine. So after getting their hands on a search warrant, detectives went up to room 1803, which like I said, it was this suite. It was $525 a month at the time, which was a lot, I think. I actually don't know the exact equivalent, but it was three rooms. They found weed, they found heroin, a floor plan of the museum, books about precious stones. Like this was incriminating stuff that they found. And as they're going through all the evidence and they're trying to figure out where these guys went, they were interrupted when a disheveled Roger Clark, so the getaway driver, walked into the hotel room. So after the heist, he had actually driven to his family home in Connecticut to get away from it all and kind of hide for a bit. But then he stupidly went back to the hotel room for some reason, with a friend. Like, he just was like, okay, we got away with it. Let's go back to New York and go back to the hotel, the very, like, scene of most of the crime. And he walks right into these detectives and, of course, is heavily questioned. And it was during the questioning that he crumbled almost immediately and he told them that the two guys, Murph and Kuhn, had flown to Florida. So Roger Clark, upon getting questioned by these detectives, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, like an idiot, honestly. He sang like a canary. He told them everything they needed to know. While meanwhile, in Miami, the boys sat in an apartment with the curtains pulled tight and shut, and they took out all the big stones from the case and rolled them around on the carpet with a flashlight, marveling at how beautiful and shiny and expensive these things are. They looked at the sapphires and they were like, under the light, they looked like shooting stars. And one of the thieves said, when you'd roll them around, boom, boom, they looked like little explosions. Deciding that his apartment probably wasn't the best hiding place for the gems, Kuhn turned to his friend Dickie Pearson, who he'd actually worked with on some previous crimes, so he was also a known thief. He had been his partner, so he asked Dickie if he could bury the stones in his backyard. And it's unclear if Dickie was also helping them sell the gems as well and like getting a cut or just holding on to them, but I'm pretty certain that he was also helping them sell the gems in Florida. FBI agents soon arrested Murph and Kuhn. They tracked him down and they were led to the location by the getaway driver slash some actually friends of Janet. So the girl, the 19-year-old girl, had called frazzled to her friends in New York. And essentially, that was part of the reason why they could find them so quickly as well. So they came in, they arrested them, and they thought, okay, the crime is solved. Like, we found the guys, we'll get the stones back. But really, the drama had actually just started to unfold because they had no idea where the gems were hidden. So the two thieves, Murph and Kuhn, their plan, their epic plan was to steal the gems, go back to Florida, sell them, and then hop on a flight to Hawaii to go surfing. But their plan was foiled because they were caught. A cigar-puffing Murph in an interview expressed annoyance. He said, I was supposed to be on my way to Hawaii to surf, and now all this inconvenience has fouled things up, <laughs> which I find so funny. He's so cocky, and he's like, he doesn't care. And this was actually like a total media frenzy, like a media circus. These two guys, they were actually very attractive. Like, they didn't look like two guys that needed money or like, 
that would do something. Like they were playing with the media. They did a variety of different really funny interviews, honestly. And people didn't even really see them as the bad guys. They started being seen in this more positive light. Like people thought that they were cool, which is so messed up. But okay. After being arrested and flown to New York to await their sentencing and all this, one of the surfers, Kuhn, he begged for a deal. He was like, I will help you guys track down the jewels. I know where they are in exchange for a lenient sentence. So he was flown back to Florida. He was handcuffed and accompanied by undercover detectives to track down the jewels. And at the Florida airport, they came off the flight and they walked to their car, this black sedan rental car. And Kuhn took one look at the car and he's like, that will not do. And one of the detectives says, he's like, he didn't like the car I got him, so I had to get him a red convertible. So they were just like giving this guy whatever he needed because they were like, we need to find these priceless, precious gems. Like we need to get these things ASAP before they're on the market, like the undercover jewel market. So they were just doing whatever they could to get these gems back. So Kuhn led the law enforcement authorities all over Miami Beach. Like he was just going, like leading them on this wild goose chase, making hush calls, hitting the bars for like these supposed meetings that like weren't actually meetings. Like he was just stalling and perhaps he had actually no idea where the gems had gotten off to because apparently they weren't where they had left them. After communicating with known Miami Beach fencers, so fencers, I actually learned this term, it's the title given to a person who receives or deals in stolen goods. These black market salespeople fencers, they found out that there was this one well-known fencer named High Gordon, and they asked him to dinner. And Gordon said at dinner that he would do anything he could to help them as long as he didn't get involved in a conspiracy or subject himself to any prosecution. So he was like, I can't be held accountable for this. Like, I will not be going to jail if I help you guys. So they finally said, they're like, yep, we will do whatever we can to make sure that your name stays out of this if you help us find these gems, which were likely on the black market as they were speaking. So at 3 a.m., the detectives received a phone call from Gordon saying he was coming to pick one of them up and go for a drive, which honestly, I could never be a detective or like an officer because I would be like, this is where I go to die. Like, yes, I'm a police officer, but who the heck knows where this guy is going to take me? Like, I would be terrified. But he came by their hotel. He picked up one of the detectives and they drove to a diner which again, sketchy. I feel like whenever people go to a diner, there's always a shooting or something like in the movies and shows, obviously. But alas, they went to this diner and it was a very odd little couple they had because it was this illegal jewel salesman and this detective who is enforcing the law like together at this diner. Very odd pair. They went inside briefly and when they came back out to the car, There was a note on the car along with a key directing them to a grimy Miami bus station and a locker number 0911. And funny enough, Gordon actually stuffed the note into his mouth after he read it and he swallowed it, which just, okay, so dramatic. But inside locker 0911, they found two drenched suede pouches, which indicated to the detectives that the gems were being hidden underwater prior to being given up. Like they were somehow underwater, which honestly, when I read this, I pictured like a crab pot. Back home in Maryland, we have these like little crab pots where you can catch crabs and obviously eat them, but there's a whole lot of rules attached to it. I mean, I'm not even gonna get into that. No one really cares, but I have a feeling like maybe they were hidden in something like that. So you could easily be pulled out of the water at any time. And no one really like keeps track of these things. Like there's crab pots all over the place and no one really like checks up on them. Like no 
like legit people would ever find them besides the person that owns the crab pot. I don't know. That's just like one of my theories. No one knows where they were. Like to this day, no one knows where they were being hidden. Inside were nine of the gems. So in these pouches, there was nine. There was the Star of India, which was that huge golf ball sapphire, the Midnight Star, five emeralds, and two aquamarines. And when Kuhn heard about this, who was absolutely no help. We'll get into this, but he literally didn't know where they were. Like, if they hadn't gotten a hold of this fencer guy, Hi Gordon, like, they would never have found these things. So, Kuhn says he almost had a heart attack because the ruby was missing. And Kuhn figured that Dickie, Dickie Pearson, the person that they'd hidden the gems in his backyard, had dug up the jewels earlier and snagged the ruby for himself and sold it and didn't tell anyone. So he was freaking out because he knew if like this large, like one of the more priceless of the gems was still missing, like he was still going to get fucked in court, you know? So the fencer High Gordon had tracked the gems down apart from the ruby and maybe Dickie had sold the ruby. So they only found nine. Like I said, there was 24 total stolen. So, you know, not even half were discovered, but they were the more expensive of the ones stolen. So they weren't overall like that upset about it. They're like, this is honestly still a win. But of course they didn't give up. They were still on the hunt to find the other gems, primarily that ruby. Like the ruby was definitely the talk of the town. People knew that the ruby was still out there. So people were doing their best detective work on their own to track down the ruby. And one of these such people, a freelance writer named Francis P. Antel, he interviewed Dickie Pearson. He went straight to Dickie. He's like, I'm going to figure out where Dickie hid this ruby because he just knew, he had a feeling that Dickie knew where it was. And Dickie admitted that he, quote, might be able to contact someone who could get a hold of the ruby. And he said, if, if and only if there was a possibility of my immunity, like he would not get charged for it. He would not get linked to this crime. If he found the ruby, he was asking for full immunity and a $25,000 cash reward. So this guy, freaking, okay, such a classic criminal. Like, okay, I did something wrong probably, but I'm asking to not be linked to this thing that I did and I want money out of it. So later on, he would go to prison for something else. So he did sit behind bars, but it wasn't for this, which is interesting. Like, anyway, I digress. So the writer, this guy, Francis, he connected Dickie with a billionaire who would donate the 25K, just mere pocket change to this Florida billionaire in exchange for retrieval of the ruby. And the billionaire, his name was John D. MacArthur. He was kind of a philanthropist in his own right. He participated in this. He donated the ransom money because he wanted to, quote, bail out the ruby for the public. Like he wanted to do this good deed. And it was honestly probably very exciting for him to be a part of this, right? And have his name attached to it. So it was also a little self-serving, but mostly it was a good deed. So in Florida... These guys, they were waiting at the Colonnades Hotel late at night. It was the billionaire. It was a newspaper reporter. It was a newspaper photographer. And they were just sitting in wait, waiting for something to happen. So he'd given the ransom money to Dickie and they were just waiting for something to happen, which honestly kind of bold because like what if Dickie just like ran away with the money and disappeared? They were really just kind of going out on a limb with this and just hoping for the best. So then eventually they get a call from the writer. So the writer was with Dickie. I guess they were like, okay, you stick with this guy so he doesn't run and figure out how to get the ruby. So the writer is on the phone. He calls the billionaire, the reporter, and the photographer, and he tells them to go to this service plaza on the Sunshine State Parkway in Florida. So the writer was with Dickie on the phone relaying his instructions. When the billionaire and the newspaper guys arrive to the service plaza, 
a payphone was ringing. And this is like straight out of a movie, guys. Like they get there, it's like in the middle of the night and there's this ringing phone. And so they pick up the phone and on the other end, the writer told the reporter to reach up over a ledge in the plaza, like a random ledge. I don't know if it was on a building or something. And the guy reaches his hand up and he screams, I've got it, I've got it. So in that moment, the photographer captures the retrieval of the ruby and the front page story the next day read, here's ruby exclusive, our man picks up ransomed gem. So the newspaper got the credit, the billionaire got the credit, he returned the the ruby and Dickie was just like out with $25,000 up his sleeve. And who the heck knows? At this point, we still don't know what had happened. No one knows and no one will ever know because he never shared a peep of what actually happened to it. Detectives later said that Kuhn, who had come on the mission, you know, to find the gems himself, like he came, remember, to get a lenient sentence to try to help them. They said, they were like, just so everyone knows, Kuhn was not involved at all. Like he didn't do a thing. And instead he was actually glued to the TV in his hotel room. Like he literally did nothing. But Kuhn, he says that this is not true. He said he went like with Dickie to go dig him up. He said that he was like the reason that they were found, but no one believed him. They're like, he's lying and he's a bullshitter. Once on the plane back to New York, the detectives, they actually didn't bring, which is so interesting. You'd think if you're going to retrieve gems, you'd bring like a bulletproof case with you to put them in on the way back or like you'd transfer them to like the FBI or I don't know, like something legit would happen. But no, he had these priceless gems. The detective, he puts them into an air sickness bag, like one of those bags in the back of the seat on the plane. He says, I wasn't going to let them get out of my sight. I didn't care. Like, I needed them right here with me. I was going to protect them with my life. That's what he said. So on April 6th, 1965, two months after pleading guilty to the National History Museum heist, I almost keep saying national. I hope I didn't say national. It's natural. Natural History Museum. The surfer boys were shipped off to jail in exchange for cooperating with the recovery, which They really didn't do, but I guess they were talking to the detectives. They were trying to help, I guess, though they didn't actually really do much help. They received pretty light sentences, serving roughly two years each on Rikers Island, which is kind of crazy. Only two years-ish each for this crime. I read some places that they got a three-year sentence, other places that they got a two-ish year sentence. It's unclear. I think they only ended up actually serving two years, a little over two years. Like, isn't that kind of crazy? I mean, this was the 60s, but I just find that so bizarre. They only served like roughly two years each. But the detectives that ultimately protected the gems of their life went on these like risky missions to try to find them. They all received a lot of praise. One of them went on to become a special prosecutor and ran for district attorney. Like he did great things. This is Detective Najari. That's his name. And To this day, or actually he passed away recently, but up until he passed away, he kept a photo of the Star of India in his living room, serving as a reminder of the most meaningful case of his entire career. A few days after the sentencing, so in April of 1965, the Star of India went back on exhibit, and this time it was secured in a thick glass display case stationed on the museum's main floor. And every night, the case would pivot out of sight into a black two-ton safe. So they learned from their mistakes at the museum. You know, it served as a reason to get higher security, which is great to know. But 10 of the 24 most valuable gems were back in museum custody. The rest, to this day, were never found. Unless they have been and they just weren't reported about and they're keeping it under wraps, I don't know. But to my knowledge, only 10 of them were ever found. 
And the others might have been cut up into smaller pieces and sold and made into other objects. Like, no one knows where they are. As for what happened to these guys after their release from Rikers in 1967, Roger Clark, the getaway driver, he became a bartender and a golf pro. And he ended up in Vermont. He spent 15 years working at a French restaurant owned by this woman named Betty. And Betty said, I would trust him with my life. He was so law-abiding that he wouldn't even jaywalk. He drove so slowly. I used to say to him, you drove that getaway car. (laughs) So Roger Clark was clean, but Jack Murphy and Alan Kuhn returned to Miami and to their careers as thieves and criminals. And a movie would later be made called Murph the Surf about their escapades, mainly focusing on Murph the Surf, as it was called that, because he was actually one of the more extreme criminals of the two. But while the movie was being made in the mid-70s, he was actually sitting behind bars. He was in prison for first-degree murder, serving two life terms plus 20 years. He'd been convicted of being involved in the murder of these two women, who were actually also thieves on a boat. And there's a lot linked to this, a lot of details I'm not going to share, just because it's very gruesome. But there's apparently an argument over money. The two women were killed and they wound up dead and sunk with like these concrete blocks in a river and he was eventually convicted of that. But Kuhn, on the other hand, he'd actually become in later years a law-abiding citizen, first working as a prop master for movies in LA and then moving in with his wife to Missouri where he opened up a topsoil and landscaping business. But while in jail, Murph the Surf, he also turned a new leaf. He turned to Jesus Christ to wash away his sins and became a devout Christian. And the Florida Parole Board actually chose to believe that Murph was a changed man. And despite being convicted of potentially having a role in killing these two women. I guess there wasn't enough evidence to like really say that he killed them, but he definitely assisted with disposing of the bodies. But even given this and his involvement in so many other crimes, he was given a get out of jail free card. He was put on parole and was able to roam free. Like he wasn't released back into civil society totally like he was on parole. But a year later, he got married. He became a prison minister. And that's what happened to him. And they, the two guys actually kind of lost touch for a bit until 2004. So in 2004, Kuhn was actually reading his local newspaper and he was startled to see an announcement that Murph the Surf, his accomplice, his partner in crime, was speaking at a prison near California. And Kuhn was curious. He had not spoken to Murph in decades. So he left a message at Champions for Life, which was the prison ministry that Murph was a part of. And Murph later called him back 15 minutes later. And they said that they picked up right where they left off. And Murph said do you want to go to prison with me? And Kuhn replied, didn't we already do that? So Kuhn met up with Murph and they did this little like speech for inmates talking about how they've turned a new leaf in their life and all of this. And Murph the Surf, he passed away in 2020 of natural causes at home with his wife and Alan Kuhn passed away a bit earlier in 2017. And that's the story of New York City's biggest jewel heist. And Yeah, it's crazy. The story of a couple of uh, tanned, young thrill seekers from Florida, surfers turned jewel thieves. And it's crazy how reading about this story and honestly reading a lot about other true crime cases and things of that nature where the people that are the bad guys are honestly like they're painted as these not heroes, but there's all this fanfare. There's all this like media attention to the point where they're kind of like mini I don't know, superstars, like making a a movie about this and all that. Like, I think it's actually so crazy how this happens, how these bad guys, these criminals are 
painted in a light of like, this is an exciting thing. And I guess I'm doing it too by sharing this story, but I just thought it was so wild. I do think though that this ended up, obviously there's still 10 missing gems, which is such an issue, but I think it was honestly a good thing that it happened because then now the museum has such tight security. Like you can tell when you go to these places how security has changed because of incidents like this. And now these priceless works are under such top-notch security that like these amateurs could never get in and do something like this. Like the windows shouldn't have been open, the batteries shouldn't have been dead, and there should have been more people walking around patrolling at night. Like that's just how it should have been. And it wasn't. And I'm sure a lot of people got fired over it. And there's a lot of drama. But at the end of the day, they pulled off, these two amateurs pulled off the biggest jewel heist in New York City history. It's crazy. I think it's still the biggest. I was reading a story about something that happened actually recently, like this year in the Bronx, like another, a jewelry store was robbed, but I'm not sure if it ended up being like more expensive than this, considering that there were priceless gems involved in this one. So I don't know for sure, but isn't that just a crazy story? Thrill seekers, thrill seekers, like it makes you feel like you have this superpower. And though I myself do not aspire to commit a crime to feel these sorts of things, like this adrenaline, this like hit to the amygdala and feeling like you're on top of the world. Like it's an exciting feeling to have an adrenaline rush. I don't need to commit a crime to do it, but I do seek thrilling moments. And I feel like a lot of us do, you know, you you do risky things because you're like, it gives you this high. So I can imagine how these guys were feeling, even though they were like on the verge of getting caught at any moment. But I'm still floored that they weren't even in prison for that long. Like if they had been in prison for longer, this guy, Murph, wouldn't have gone on to like be an accomplice in this crime. And, you know, these women might still be alive or like would have been alive. Not anymore because it's been so many years, but it's just crazy. You know, two years in prison for stealing priceless gems. It just doesn't feel right to me. And I'm not sure if things would be different now. I'm sure they would be because that's just bonkers to me. But Overall, such an interesting story, guys. Thanks for listening to this dramatic tale of New York City's biggest jewel heist at the Natural History Museum. And I have to say, if you guys are visiting the city, go to the museum. I heard that this exhibit is now reopened. I was reading that it was closed for a bit. And then I don't know if it's been transformed into being called something else, or I think it's on a different floor now. Like There's a bunch of conflicting things. I got to go for myself and see what's actually there. If the main gem, the golf ball-sized sapphire is still on display, I'm so curious. I have to go see it with my own two eyes. But thanks for listening, guys. And I will talk to you guys in the new year. Have an amazing holiday season and an amazing new year. And I will talk to you guys soon. Bye.